This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in today for your regular host, Mr. Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in the United Kingdom is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. And from our office in Jerusalem, Israel, is Brent Noctegal. Good to be with you. Well, today marks the 100th day of Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine. We've spoken on the show several times about how this war is quickly changing the world, and the biggest change so far has been Germany's response to it. The Germans were deeply unsettled by the invasion, and they announced back in February that they would respond by dramatically increasing their military spending. So that was three months ago, and now this week, Germany began turning those plans into some tangible action. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Germany is is finally putting this into practice. They're in the process right now of amending their constitution so that they can spend this uh, uh, spend more on their military. So you know, just like we we kind of alluded to, you had Russia invade Ukraine, and, and just days after that, Germany made a dramatic announcement: we're going to spe- we're going to create a special 100 billion euro fund to upgrade our military. And we are finally going to meet the NATO minimum defense spending for our military, and we will be spending 2% of our economy uh, on our military every year. So that was announced all the way back in February, but now we're seeing the gears going through and the more kind of specific concrete plans put in place. I think it was interesting that they decided to go the route where they're they're changing the constitution. This is something that requires a two-thirds majority uh, it shows how much support that this change has that they're able to get that two-thirds majority the ruling coalition is sitting down with the christian democratic union the christian social union the main opposition parties they sat down with them on sunday uh, and all of these just about all of germany's major parties it was only the fringe parties left out uh, agreed on how they were going to move forwards so uh, almost unanimous you know a lot of support for this and uh, I mean, the specifics look at the moment, but it was maybe not too much more that we know compared to uh, what was announced back in uh, back in February. There has been a lot of arguing over some of you know, the fine print. Uh, do we promise to meet 2% every year or when you average it out over several years, do we meet 2%? You know, that kind of, of detail, uh, there's been lots of back and forthing on, okay, do we include defending our companies from cyber attacks in that 2% or not. Uh, so they're not the most, most earth-shaking details, but that has been what has been occupying most of the time with these discussions. They changed, had to change the constitution because Germany does have constitutional limits. There's a, it's called a debt break that uh, limits how much they can borrow. Uh, and so by enshrining this in the constitution, they can make sure that this monetary spending is not limited by the debt break, that they can uh, continue to borrow and, and spend this amount of money. But we are seeing now this dramatic announcement. Uh, this is a very concrete step now towards that announcement becoming reality. 
So I understand that some in the German political arena are saying that, you know, as nice as, as it is to have this additional 100 billion euros, that it's still not nearly enough to get Germany where it needs to be. There's a lot saying that, yes. And actually, there's quite a few people even within Germany that are kind of disappointed with some of the details that we've been seeing this week. There's still a lot of hazy kind of fudgy language. Uh, so I don't know if it's completely clear. But when Schultz made his announcement in February, he was very clear Germany was going to be spending 2% on its military every year. And in addition to that, there would be spending $100 billion. Uh, now we're getting this kind of, it seems like he's been backing away from that in recent months. I guess he's been looking at some of the, the costs and he's still got lots of green projects that he wants to work on, on this kind of thing. Uh, so it seems like he's trying to push towards 2%, um, and that the hundred billion would be used to help meet that 2% target rather than coming on top of that 2% target. So that's a fairly significant change. That is disappointing a lot of people. Uh, and you've got the Christian Democratic unions, those right-wing parties, they're very much committed to this idea of, no, we need much more spending. But if anyone's been, I mean, if you've been watching German politics for the last 20 or 30 years, the, it's been an amazing turnaround. This has been, there's, it's gone from being, say, bipartisan agreement that we should cut the defense budget to nobody really cares very much about the defense budget but you know one party might slightly increase it now you've got both parties uh, where they've got a major part of their platform is we are increasing the defense budget and we disagree about how much to increase it by and so yeah there's a huge appetite within within germany to do that and i think another important change that's worth pointing out is the kind of the turnaround in some of the military attitudes within Germany as well. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he talked about uh, this you know, he, uh, back in the, uh, the previous but one Trumpet print edition, uh, talking about this big turnaround in Germany. One of the points he made in that article was that the change in attitude within Germany it's, and its attitude towards being a military power and being aggressive and having an assertive military, that change in attitude was probably as significant as this change in actual dollar amounts. And I think that is something that we're seeing as well, where um, you know, the army is, is now getting a lot more of a focus in the German military. They're, a lot of military officers are, are open that they're ecstatic about getting this, this money. There's a change in, uh, in how Germany perceives its military. There's a change in how threatened Germany feels as well. And we'll talk more about how all of Europe feels threatened a bit in the second half. Uh, but that change of attitude of, okay, we live in a dangerous world, we need a strong military and we need to value and cherish it, that's a very significant change in Germany as well. So in the Western world, most people are not at all concerned about Germany's, you know, this change in attitude that you just mentioned, and also the increasing military spending. In fact, we, we see many people cheering it on, just saying, we need Germany to start to shoulder more of the global defense responsibility. What would you say to those who see these changes that way? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. A lot of people, uh, most people are not concerned about this. And uh, the the America, the Biden administration in the U.S. was absolutely ecstatic when Germany uh, made this announcement. And I, But I think the warning signs are already there and already clear that uh, 
we need to be very careful in in in, in celebrating this. I and mean, you can see this, I think, already in Germany's response to the Ukraine crisis, where lots of people really see how duplicitous this is about how uh, I think we've had just this week about the sixth or seventh announcement that Germany is going to finally send heavy weapons into Ukraine. The reason it's the sixth or seventh announcement is on all those previous announcements, Germany has talked big and made these big promises and somehow they've never turned up. Uh, you know, that's not that's not an accident. That's not ineptitude. They are quite clearly not backing Ukraine the way that they could in this. They are siding with Russia and you see them torpedoing the sanctions. You see them. They're the main architect. Why we, you know, the media, they love to talk about these sanctions like we're doing something about Russia. Those that really know what they're talking about when it comes to all the details of financial finances say these are sanctions in name only. Uh, they're fundamentally not effective. And in, and, and in fact, Russia's, the amount of cash Russia has in hand is ballooning. They've got dramatically more money. Now, there's less that they can spend it on because of those sanctions. But the way that they've been put in place, they've just funneled billions, maybe even trillions of extra euros and dollars uh, into the Kremlin. I th one analyst made a good point this week. He asked, well, what would you rather have? Not have a billion dollars or have a billion dollars, but have a, have a bunch of restrictions on what you can spend it on? You know, we'd all rather take the billion dollars. Uh, so a lot of these sanctions have even been counterproductive. So right at the heart of this is you've got Germany quite clearly on the playing a different game, on a different side to NATO, to Britain, to America, uh, and to what they're doing in Ukraine. And that alone means, okay, well, we should really watch what Germany is doing. If they make their military stronger, are they going to be putting that military on our side? Because they're not on our side at the moment. And then you just bring in the history there you know, that, that, uh, we, I mean, everyone knows the history, but we, we, we ignore the history that Germany has a long history of starting these different world wars. Uh, you know, I remember we sat down and talked with Nicholas Frank, this uh, son of a, a German, a German uh, Nazi figure. And his big message that he repeated so often was don't trust us. You know, that's coming from somebody who knows Germany deeper than, than most people around today. Uh, and he knows he he is very plain. You know, we are capable of doing this again. When the chips are down, things will change very quickly. Then you bring into that Bible prophecy, and if we have all of this history. We can already see Germany turning against us. Well, the Bible says that this would happen as well, and that the Bible has a lot of these very specific prophecies. Uh, the United States and Britain and prophecy is just a great place to go to to get a whole overview of God's plan for for the world, really. But one of the things that that brings out is, uh, okay, well, there's, uh, God is, is, has a plan for Britain and for America, a plan to benefit the whole world. Uh, but he also uses countries to punish Britain and America. And Germany is prophesied to play that role, to be used in punishing Britain, punishing uh, America. You turn to Revelation chapter 17, and this describes a, an empire, a beast power that it, that it calls it there. Uh, it's an empire that rises and falls, and it's referring to this European superpower led by Germany. You, you put Revelation 17 side by side with history, side by side with other Bible prophecies, that becomes very clear. And it talks about this empire rising and falling, rising and falling, uh, disappearing, seeming like it's gone. And everyone says, oh, it's all safe and there's nothing to worry about. And then it comes back again. So you know, the Bible tells us that we would be in exactly this situation. 
And so now we're seeing, seeing them starting to come back again. That's what this spending is all about. But ultimately, I mean, you put it in the overview there of God's plan in the United States and Britain in prophecy. Uh, you know, God is using us. God is, God is all behind all of this. Uh, and he has a plan for the world. He has a plan that includes Germany as well, uh, a plan to bring everybody to, to the point where they will obey God so that he can give them all of these wonderful blessings. So there's a great future for everybody involved, uh, but there's a powerful warning there as well of not to trust Germany, not to trust what's going on in Europe, and instead uh, to make changes now and, and to look to God. We will leave a link in our show notes to the United States and Britain and Prophecy by Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And we also have an article up on our website right now. It's called German Political Parties Agree on Militarization Plan by Josue Michels. This article goes through the details just of this week's developments about uh, Germany's moves toward greater military power. And it also points at those bigger trends and prophecies that, that we just discussed there. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Our next story is also related to Russia's war on Ukraine and specifically about some new signs of greater potential involvement from Belarus. For this, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so on May 30th, the Belarusian state news agency, BelTA, reported that the military of Belarus will be conducting mobilization exercises uh, this month and going into next month. They'll start, according to, again, the state news agency on June 22nd and continue until July 16th. Now, obviously, Belarus, it's uh, it's a close partner of uh, Russia and uh, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin used Belarus to help stage his invasion of Ukraine. And so this is obviously getting on a few people's radar. And what's most interesting is the location of these specific exercises. They'll be taking place in the Gomel region, which is in the southeast of Belarus, bordering Ukraine and Russia. Um, A spokesman for the uh, for the Belarusian military, Andrei Krivonosov, said that uh, these kind of events are, quote, traditionally held to increase the combat and mobilization readiness of military commissariats and improve military knowledge and practical skill of those liable for military service, end quote. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth about talking about maybe Russia and Belarus would be going to war with NATO and uh, uh, with the heightened tensions because of the war. Um, but these exercises are occurring nowhere near Belarus's border with NATO. They're uh, on the opposite side of the country, which is why uh, uh, people are so interested in this. Uh, so far, Belarusian soldiers themselves haven't participated in the war with Ukraine. But some people are wondering if perhaps this could be a sign of uh, things to come or uh, a change. And we see actual Belarusian involvement in the war. So what would you say this tells us about uh, Belarus's relationship with Russia? Well, it's shown that uh, they, they were close before. Belarus has for most of its history been um, or at least most of its history as an independent country, a satellite state of Russia. At this point, um, we're, sh- we're seeing that. Uh, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko and his government are basically Russian stooges completely in in all but name. Uh, Belarus is a very poor country. It's very landlocked. It's smaller than Ukraine in size and population and uh, in the economy. And if it decided to invade uh, Ukraine, it'd be disastrous for Belarus. It's already uh, has a suffering economy. The sanctions 
Russia has been able to hold on its own through the Western sanctions. Belarus would probably have its economy crippled. And um, it doesn't really, Belarus doesn't really have a dog in the fight in Ukraine, per se. It's too small of a country to really want a, a spear of influence, per se. So the only reason that Belarus would ever be partaking in this is because um, the Russians and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin are goading them on. Again, it remains to be seen whether they'll actually get involved in Ukraine or not. If it was going to get involved, announcing um, the uh, the exercises a month ahead of time would not be the smartest strategy. But at the same time, we can see that Belarus is getting more and more involved in this crisis for no other reason than uh, because Vladimir Putin wants him to. Would you be able to place this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners? Of course. Now, anything that happens with uh, Russian politics, and especially with what uh, the, uh, President Putin is doing, we look at through the lens of a specific Bible prophecy in Ezekiel 38 that talks about a uh, the first few verses talk about a chief prince of Meshach and Tubal that were chief could better be translated as Rosh, so a uh, proper noun. So the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal are ancient names for Moscow and Tobolsk, which is, used to be a prominent city in Siberia. So these prophecies show that this is a ruler from of all of Russia, from west to east. And our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, has talked about um, how this in, uh, talks about a prominent personality that would be in control of all the peoples of Russia, which implies he may take over more countries in uh, the old Soviet Union. You can uh, read that in his book with the prophesied Prince of Russia and uh, other contexts in the prophecy talk about this being in the la in the latter days, a time we're living in, living in now. This man is going to command a fearsome army. The rest of the chapter talks about that. And with the invasion of Ukraine, uh, obviously, a lot of people have been focusing on how this uh, 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 Putin is invading a former Soviet country. And Mr. Fleury points to Putin being the fulfillment of this prophecy. But while everyone's focusing on Ukraine, uh, Moscow has succeeded in getting a silent takeover of Ukraine and Russia's neighbor, Belarus, another former Soviet state, if anything. Putin has even more control over that country now than Ukraine, and all without actually going to war or uh, with Belarus or anything. So it's demonstrating just how uh, um, how much influence this one man is able to have in this part of the world, and how he's putting together the old Soviet empire that Russia lost a few decades ago. And again, another demonstration of the fulfillment of uh, the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. We uh, have an article from our most recent issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's called Belarus is Back in the USSR, which we can leave a link to in our show notes for today's program. We'll also link to the booklet that Mihailo just mentioned there, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, which really takes a deep dive into all the relevant scriptures. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Mihailo. We'll take a look now at Iran, which is continuing to stockpile highly enriched uranium and now has enough for a nuclear bomb. For this, we'll turn it over to Brent Noctegal. 
Yeah, it seems like this, uh, the increase in Iran's nuclear material just keeps on increasing while the while the world dawdles and, and talk about a new nuclear deal. Uh, there was a report that came out this week on Monday that Iran has enough uh, 60, uh, enriched uranium at 60% to produce one, a nuclear bomb if it chooses to then go ahead and increase to weapons grade somewhere between 80 and 90%, which could take a little as, as two or three weeks. Um and so this is kind of just another benchmark that that observers use to recognize how much of a threat a nation is, how fast they can achieve nuclear breakout, or or how long will nuclear breakout be? That means how long till a nation has weapons grade uranium to use for a nuclear weapon or or other element. And so Iran right now is two or three weeks away. This was a report that was given by the IAEA, uh, the International Observer the Atomic Energy Agency to the different member states that are participating in or trying to at least in this renewed nuclear deal negotiations with the Iranians. Uh, these reports that were sent out on Monday, it one highlighted just how close Iran was and how much they have uh, further increased their stockpile of 60% per, uh, 60% uh, purity. Um, and it also addressed this issue of nuclear material that's been found in inside Iran by the IAEA that Iran has refused to give an answer for. Basically, there is proof there in Iran that the IAEA has found that of nuclear material and nuclear processes that show that it wants a nuclear bomb. And the IAEA has said, you need to come forward and tell us why you did this. Give us a credible reason for why you have that, why that we have this proof. What were you doing? Iran has refused to do that as well. So two points from this week. One, they're not coming clean. They say they're nuclear programs for peaceful purposes. And two, full steam ahead with their enrichment up to uh, enough 60% uh, enriched uranium for one for at least one nuclear weapon. So we've spoken on the show several times about the nuclear deal that the Obama administration made with Iran, and of course about how uh, President Trump scrapped that terrible deal, but now President Biden has been just dead set on working to revive it. What role would you say those attempts at reviving the nuclear deal uh, play in the developments that we've, we've kind of discovered this week? Well, I think we know that Iran... Uh, it is using this process of nuclear blackmail on the West. Um, typically, if you didn't want a nuclear weapon, you would, uh, and you didn't want a power to get towards nuclear weapons, you would come on strong, I would say, to, to make sure they don't further their development. Right now, it seems like they, the US is offering them um, uh, economic and uh, a big windfall economically. Um, and all they have to do is kind of freeze where they're at and perhaps lower it a little bit. Um, the Trump administration pulled out of the nuclear deal in 2018. And so every report you read right now will blame what's going on right now to the Trump administration. Um, but you know, the Trump administration and Israel as its side, uh, I don't think they would have allowed Iran to get to this point. They were willing to to even, and even Israel is practicing maneuvers this week. There was a massive uh, maneuver by Israel this week to, to um, practice an attack on Iran's nuclear infrastructure, a big attack, because that's how dangerous Israel sees it as going. Um, the nuclear deal initially was never intended to stop Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon. The sunset clauses inside the original nuclear deal basically said, hey, if you comply to this deal in 10 years, you can have a nuclear weapon. And that 
you can have enough nuclear material for a nuclear weapon. Um, and we're almost at the sunset of that, uh, those 10 years anyway. And so I think the only way to impact the Iranians, and I think most observers would realize this by now, is that you need to not be negotiating with them. The negotiations give Iran a cover to keep on enriching uranium. Like, We've been trying to get to the negotiating table, and the only thing that's stopping it apparently is the Iranians wanting more from the U.S., and the U.S. keeps on staying at the table, all the while they keep on developing nuclear fuel to increase the, the nuclear jeopardy that the world gets into. And so obviously this has not worked, and, and right now Iran is a few weeks away from, again, if they choose to go towards a nuclear bomb, they can get there in two or three weeks. Why? Why would anyone negotiate with such a with, with such a um, with such a, a nation that that is set on um, producing a nuclear weapon in this in this way? I mean, if they had peaceful purposes for their nuclear program, you don't need anything more than five or six percent, twenty percent maybe if you're if it's for some type of medical uh, uh, materials that you're producing. But there's no reason to have 60% nuclear material uh, purity unless you want a nuclear weapon. And so the proof is there, um, but these negotiations or the, the desire to return to negotiations are just providing cover for Iran to gain more nuclear material. So what can you tell us about why the notion of Iran uh, obtaining nuclear weapons is so concerning, you know, more concerning than if, say, Brazil or South Korea or some other nation were to join the nuclear club? Because Iran doesn't believe in, in mutually assured destruction, meaning that that would not restrain them from using a nuclear weapon, because fundamentally this is a fanatical Islamic, Islamist regime that believes in world chaos directly preceding the coming of their messiah. And so we've said, and, and Bernard Lewis back 30 years, 40 years ago said this, that you can't negotiate with somebody that is happy to send the world towards nuclear war. And Iran is happy to do that. Yes, they might want to use it as a, as a, as a, as a way of gaining more power, this threat of nuclear weapons to get more money in the short term. But fundamentally, they want to use a nuclear weapon. And so they're not going to be restrained by their own self-destruction if they press send on, on a nuclear weapon. And so that's why they are dangerous. And that's why they're dangerous from every other nuclear uh, member of the club, because everyone else is worried about their own destruction. Iran isn't. If people want to read more about this and the danger that Iran poses with its nuclear weapons, Mr. Flurry has written about this at length in his booklet, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door is the name of that booklet. We will leave a link to that in our show notes. Thanks very much for that, Brent. Well, here in the United States, we are trudging ever onward toward November's midterm elections. Democrats, of course, are hoping to maintain their narrow control of the Senate and the House of Representatives. And toward that end, we might have expected them to work toward mitigating some of the economic woes that the U.S. is facing. But instead, some are aiming to make midterms about a whole different issue. For this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, battle lines are being drawn between the, the two major United States political parties as the midterms draw ever closer. The uh, Most analysts are expecting the Republicans to do quite well, actually, uh, maintaining control of the Senate and maybe even getting control of the, the House due to the atrocious state of the U.S. economy and the uh, 
with soaring inflation, record-breaking gas prices, supply chain crises. Uh, a lot of Americans think the economy has hit rock bottom, but there's there's good indication that uh, it hasn't quite gotten as bad as it's going to get. This is a statement from the CEO of the largest bank in America, J.P. Morgan Chase. He said this Wednesday, he said, you know, I said there's storm clouds on the horizon, but I'm going to change my assessment. It's a hurricane. You better brace yourself. JP Morgan is bracing ourselves, and we're going to be very conservative with our balance sheets. So here's someone uh, well-versed in economics who's saying that the, the inflation, the supply chain shortages, the, the gas prices, the energy crisis, all that's getting worse. And on that same day, actually, uh, Joe Biden talked about the same issue. And uh, while he didn't mention the statements from the J.P. Morgan guy, he pretty much confirmed that he's right. He uh, he finally he admitted that he's not going to be able to bring down gas or food prices in the near term. Uh, this is Biden's statement. He said the idea that we're going to be able to, you know, click a switch and bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. Uh, and then he, uh, of course, tried to blame that on the Ukraine crisis. But uh, he definitely admitted, same as the J.P. Morgan Chase guy, that the economy is going to get worse. Uh, the Republicans know that. People are upset. They're going to hammer them hard. And so Democrats, they're going to have to talk about something else if they're if they're going to if they're going to get any votes at all. And we've pretty much already figured out what that something else is going to be. Uh, it's going to be gun control is going to be one of a bigger issue. It's always a big issue in elections. It's going to be a bigger issue this election than normally. Uh, they've got this uh, uh, this uh, radical Democrat from Connecticut, uh, Richard Blumenthal, who he was on MSNBC this week saying, I'm far from optimistic in any Pollyannish way, but let me be blunt. It's time to put up or shut up for Republicans because they have a job. As a United States senator, and if you fail to do your job and vote uncommon sense solutions, then they ought to be out of a job. Ultimately, gun violence protection is going to be on the ballot this November. And, uh, and Joe Biden backed him up as well, uh, basically calling on Thursday. Biden called for a reinstatement of his 1994 gun ban uh, and even went out and said, uh, uh, went more blunt than he's been in the past and said the second amendment is not absolute so apparently even a apparently even a revoking or at least breaking the second amendment is even on the table for this so going to be a huge uh, a huge issue uh, for the democrats coming up this december uh, one because it's one of the issues democrats care about but two it's really a big way to get people talking about something other than the uh, destruction of the U.S. economy. Yeah, in the short term, this you know this focus on on gun control gives the Democrats something to talk about other than just the the deplorable economic conditions. But uh, you've made the case in the past that there's also a more long term goal that may be at play here. Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, um, our editor in chief, uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry, in his book "America Under Attack," his book "Great Again," and other places has definitely made the case that under this uh, Antiochus administration, under the Barack Obama administration, uh, much of the destruction of the U.S. economy and other things is not uh, just the result of bungling, but is uh, there's a definitely a strategic 
element of like malice there where you're, you're destroying the economy on purpose. And so when you look at it from, <laughs> from that angle, that this isn't just that, um, uh, Biden has bungled his way through this economic recovery, but the, the Democrats are actually trying to bring down the U.S. economy, then the gun control angle takes on a whole different view as well. Because if you're expecting hard economic times, um, you're risking armed revolt. And the only way to keep power in that type of environment is to disarm uh, the uh, the populace. Uh, well, one of the articles we can put in the show notes is this one from... Um, our November-December issue last year, Rising Prices, Empty Shelves, that uh, goes through uh, a lot of the evidence that the supply chain shortages were deliberately created uh, and then references uh, like some prophecies in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 4, verses 4 through 5, Ezekiel 4, verses 9 through 13, Ezekiel 5 and verse 12 that talks about uh, a devastating economic siege on America in the end time that actually causes one third of the the population to die from famine, uh, pestilence and civil war. So that's uh, that's in the uh, the Bible and uh, Mr. Floyd's booklet Ezekiel the end time prophet goes into more detail. But you're saying if the Democrats, if they're, uh, or at least the more radical among them, I'm not going to uh, claim that all Democrats aren't incompetent. I'm sure there are plenty that are. But the uh, the more the more radical Democrats who are looking at like provoking a second Bolshevik revolution, and, and several members of the Bernie Sanders campaign have said on camera that they're looking to provoke a second Bolshevik revolution. So I'm not falsely accusing them of anything. Uh, you're seeing this like, okay, if you're going to provoke this revolution, you need to destroy the economy uh, and you need to disarm your rivals if you're going to usher in this new system you're looking for. And so there's definitely this element in the Democratic Party that wants just that. And so uh, and so for that element, this is more than just about distracting people with uh, talk about gun control so they don't talk about the economy, but it's actually about the deliberate destruction of the economy and the disarming uh, of the American people. So you can usher in a new socialist uh, system, which, of course, they think will be the solution to uh, America's problems. But the Ezekiel prophecies show that there's there's no <laughs> there's no winner in that civil war. The uh, the liberals may have created the conditions for it, uh, but it just ends with uh, mass <laughs> death across the nation. Well, we will leave a link in our show notes to Great Again, the booklet by Mr. Gerald Flurry, and also to Andrew's article, Rising Prices, Empty Shelves, from our November-December 2021 issue. Thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Andrew. We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll discuss a big development in the unification of Europe's military, a historic free trade deal, and some disturbing signs of the Catholic Church's kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. 
One of the major developments the Trumpet's been closely watching over the years and commenting on is the unification of Europe, not just as a political entity, but also as a cohesive military power. And this week there was a big development in this story from Denmark. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, Denmark is... It's been almost like a little Britain or a second Britain as far as its role in in the European Union. Uh, they like the idea of, the, or in the past, they've liked the idea as the European Union is kind of this trading entity, but they've been much more suspicious of, of, the, of the kind of the closer political union. So the UK and Denmark, for example, are the only two countries when they were part of the EU uh, that had an opt out of the common currency. In theory, everybody else was obligated to join the euro at some unspecified point in the future. For Britain and Denmark, they were so keen on not joining the euro that they negotiated a specific opt-out. We don't have to do that. Uh, so Denmark has always been a bit detached from the European Union. Another way that they were detached is that they opted out of the EU's common defense policy. You know, we want to do our own military. Uh, we don't want to get involved in any kind of shared military projects with the European Union. And that has been completely changed because of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's been totally reversed over the uh, just, well, over the last few months, but uh, culminating in a vote on Wednesday where Denmark had a referendum. This is something they had to put to the people. It wasn't just something the, the kind of the elites in power could des could decide above the people's head. Uh, they put it to, to a vote and it was a 66.9% vote in favor of ending that opt-out and rejoining the EU's common defense policy. And it's just a, uh, it's a, it's a fascinating example of uh, fulfilled prophecy and fulfilled forecasts. One very memorable trumpet cover that we had quite a few years ago, I think it was 2008, is this picture of kind of the Russian bear coming at Europe and the people of Europe running to shelter under the wings of Germany. And that's exactly what we're seeing playing out now in, in Ukraine. This uh, fear of Russia is prompting these European countries to unite. And this is something Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has emphasized again and again uh, in the, again, the previous but one issue. He has an article, Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine, where he goes over some of those past forecasts and um, uh, and past prophecies and, and talks about how this, you know, we said for years that this would happen. So uh, it's a very direct fulfillment of that. And it's, uh, they're coming under, you know, Germany is celebrating this. Germany is is talking about, uh, well, they see that, that, that this is what it, ultimately what it means, putting their trust in the European Union to defend them uh, means putting that trust within Germany. So just a very tangible example of, of what we've been watching for happening. In the first half, we were talking about Revelation chapter 17 and this this prophecy of a, an, a European beast, a European empire. Revelation 17 talks about 10 kings that come up and they give their strength and power to this overall empire, to this beast. They give up their, their military or they form a, a united military. Uh, and that is exactly what we're seeing, you know, or the, the, the spirit of that, the principles of that happening already now revelation 17 talks about just 10 nations doing that i don't know whether it, denmark will be one of those 10 it does given their past euro skepticism seem unlikely but you're seeing those same pressures of people saying okay we're going we were not willing to give up control over our military or let the europe have any control over our military before 
now we are. Uh, and so it's a, a, an important movement in the direction of that prophecy being fulfilled. We will leave a link in our show notes to the Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy booklet, which goes through the key scriptures for telling a unified European military bloc in the modern era. So please check that out in the show notes. And thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll go now to Israel, where government officials have signed a historic free trade deal with the United Arab Emirates. For this, we'll turn it over once again to Brent. This trade deal uh, is the first one to be done with with an Arab state following the Abraham Accords that took place in 2020. One of the crowning foreign policy achievements of the of the Trump administration was to get some of these Arab states uh, to um, normalize their ties with the state of Israel, the Jewish state. And at that point, there was the UAE, uh, Morocco, Bahrain, and Sudan that eventually signed on to these things uh, called the Abraham Accords, as I said. Uh, And there's been a lot of work that's gone on since then to really change the relationship between those countries. Of course, you've had Israelis that have been able to travel to uh, the UAE and thousands and thousands of Israelis are doing that. Um, But now you've got the free trade agreement that that has finally been signed uh, just this past week on Tuesday. Um, Economy Minister Orna Barbave, she was in the UAE in Dubai uh, on Tuesday to sign the deal, which does really cement... um, uh, in a very practical manner, this the relationship between Israel and 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 Abu Dhabi. I think there's been about uh, almost a billion dollars worth of trade over this past year uh, that has worked even before this free trade agreement between Israelis and and the UAE, and that's up from about a million dollars of trade that took place in 2010. And then you know we've just seen that really open up, especially over the past year or so. So this is this is quite quite significant for Israelis. I think the relationship between the crown prince there and the state of Israel has been very strong. I mean, it was interesting to see the timing of this because you had the the Jerusalem. Uh, march, the flag march that takes place on Jerusalem Day every year. This is where Israel celebrates the the reforming or the unification, I should say, during the Six Day War of Jerusalem underneath Israeli leadership. No longer East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, just one Jerusalem. And every year, this is a a march that takes place throughout the city to just signify the this fact uh, and that state of Israel is proud of this. And normally there is a great outpouring of, um, or there's a lot of people upset in the Arab world over this. Um, And yet it was a day or so after that flag march that this deal went through. The UAE put out a statement saying they didn't appreciate the Israelis doing this, that, and the other thing, uh, just like this token statement. And yet they go ahead and sign a fully fledged trade deal to with Israel to get a hold of all Israel's technologies and vice versa. And so when it comes to actual agreements between heads of state in the region, I think Israel has, has come a long way. So you mentioned that under the Abraham Accords, uh, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco followed the UAE's lead in uh, establishing full diplomatic ties with Israel. Should we expect free trade deals to soon develop between Israel and, and these other three as well? I think you, you probably could, perhaps not Sudan just as yet, um, but maybe the other two, Bahrain, will come along. Of course, the UAE is is just a technology hub for the Middle East, financial technology hub, as well as gas uh, producer and other things. Um, and so it makes sense for Israel to 
really strengthened that those ties first of all i think the big one to watch will be saudi arabia actually um this is obviously the big the big deal that israel would like and there is a lot of movement in this front right now um while normalization between the two might take a little bit of a bit more time business deals between uh israelis and saudi businessmen are just going through the roof right now there there was a blanket ban on israel israelis traveling to saudi arabia but that was since has since been dismissed uh a saudi arabian business leader can businessmen can request a visitor visa for Israeli businessmen and they can get there and do a lot of deals even without normalization and that is happening to an astronomical degree right now there was a report in Al Monitor just from yesterday um, that talked about this Israelis begin doing business deals doing deals in Saudi Arabia and so there was a for the first time we had a direct flight between Tel Aviv and Riyadh on May 31st, just a few years, a few days ago. Um, this wasn't a commercial airline; it's a private jet, but and but but still significant. And so this is the big one that Israel is after. Uh, it's interesting the timing of this these deals. I think just in terms of how Saudi Arabia right now is being positioned as 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 a player of import for the Biden administration, um, because. We had reports this week that Saudi Arabia and OPEC have agreed to uh, release some more barrels of oil to, to to probably hopefully bring the price of oil down, and and Israel I think has been mediating this between the U.S. and and Saudi Arabia, um, so. Israel is, I think, the big takeaway from this outside of the larger geopolitics of the world in terms of oil is that Israel is really capitalizing on its position that the Trump administration allowed uh, to bring about through these through this uh, these increasing uh, deals, the Abraham Accords. Israel is no longer the pariah state uh, in the Middle East, at least in terms of the leadership of the Arab states. And we have an article about this, of why this is going forward outside just the economic benefits. Um, the, the real, I think that the, the significance in terms of prophecy uh, is explained in this article, why the Arabs embrace the Jews from the October, 2020 Philadelphia trumpet. It explains that while it's good to have peace between these states, I think these, this is peace between leaders of these states. This is peace between those that are worried about Iran and the need to band together for a moment in time, whereas the peoples in Saudi Arabia are definitely the ones. That's the only reason that Saudi Arabia hasn't got a deal right now with Israel is because Saudi Arabians would be furious over such a deal because Israel is still painted uh, to them as the scourge of the Middle East that needs to be removed. Um, so, you know, Short term wise, I think this is this looks like it's good for Israel, but biblical prophecy indicates that in the in the end time, uh, in our time, that these deals are going to come back to bite Israel, especially as you see increasing security cooperation between these states. Um, the Bible talks about a prophecy in Psalm eighty three of an alliance that actually comes against Israel, and that alliance actually features the UAE, Saudi Arabia. And these, some of these other nations that Israel is doing deals with right now. And so for the moment, it looks like a win. Uh, but biblical prophecy says that this is a warming of relationship that will actually uh, lead to a really big um, backstabbing by the Arab states against the Jewish state. Why the Arabs embrace the Jews is the name of that article that uh, explains the prophetic significance of this. We will be sure to leave a link to that article in the show notes for today's program. Thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Brent. We'll take a look now at a story that exposes more of the Chinese Communist Party's totalitarianism, and it also shows some disturbing truths about the Vatican. For this, we'll go once again to Mihailo. 
Yeah, Cardinal Joseph Zen, who is the retired bishop of Hong Kong, appeared in pretrial last week with a few other people over a, a, allegations of failing to register a fund that uh, gave assistance to to arrested anti-government protesters in Hong Kong. This is a, a separate charge to uh, a, a little bit earlier last month um, where they got in trouble uh, under Hong Kong's controversial national security law. So they're now being tried for two different crimes. Cardinal Zen uh, uh, said he wasn't guilty. Uh, Cardinal Zen has been an outspoken critic of the Chinese Communist Party for a long time. Um, normal Catholicism in China is illegal, but because Hong Kong's an autonomous region for a British colony, it's allowed there. And it's not so much the fact that China is going after uh, Cardinal Zen. That in itself shows how much Hong Kong has lost its liberty uh, and guarantee of autonomy to China. But what's most surprising is how silent the Vatican has been about this. This is a cardinal. He's uh, too old to elect the, the next pope. But if he was younger, he'd have that authority. And the Vatican actually isn't saying much. Um, the Sunday before uh, Cardinal Zen was arrested and or put up for pretrial on May 24th, the Sunday before that, Pope Francis said that he is attentively and actively following the often complex life and situations of faithful pastors and in China, and he prays for them every day. And that was about uh, the extent of his, uh, he said a few other comments, but that was about the extent of what he said about Cardinal Zen's situation. He didn't even mention him by name. This would be the equivalent of a retired American Secretary of State getting uh, imprisoned in Iran, and Cardinal Zen's been in, in custody this whole time, and Washington trying to downplay the situation. Now, the big reason that a lot of people are uh, suspecting this is Cardinal Zen's been an outspoken critic of the Vatican's 2018 deal with the Catholic Church, which allows the Chinese Communist Party some say in who gets appointed uh, bishops uh, in, China, in China's underground church. And uh, Cardinal Zen rightly sees this as a betrayal of uh, freedom of religion and uh, uh, protection of Catholics in China. He's been very outspoken about it. And it's almost as if, uh, I, I don't want to uh, speculate on motives per se, but I wouldn't be too surprised if there's enough people in the Vatican, including maybe even Pope Francis himself, who's happy that this uh, wedge between uh, the Vatican and Beijing is finally getting silenced. We, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but would you be able to just, just quickly put it in, in terms of Bible prophecy, why there may be this kind of kowtowing uh, by the Vatican to the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, sure. Isaiah 23 is a prophecy about a mart of nations, an end-time economic conglomerate. It includes figures like Kitten, which is the ancient name of China, as well as Tyre, which is a prophetic name for Europe. And so we're seeing an economic uh, agreement between Europe and China. You tie that in with another prophecy in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 shows that there'll be a, a woman, a biblical symbol of a church that's presiding over this great economic empire that uh, influences with the merchants of the earth. So not only does the Bible prophesy that Europe and China will get together more economically, but also that there'll be a church influencing there as well. And these kinds of appeasements that uh, the Vatican is making to China shows how much it's desperate to have a deal with China. And Revelation 18 even specifies that some of the commodities this woman will be involved in the trade of will be the souls of men. And as a little tangent, you could almost sort of say that at this point, the uh, 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 or the slaves and souls of men 
you could almost say that uh, Cardinal Zen at this point is the price the Vatican is paying to have an agreement with China. So you're starting to see this prophecy in a sense almost being fulfilled now. We will leave a a link in our show notes to an article from last month by Andrew Miller. It's called The Vatican Abandons Chinese Catholics, and it goes through those prophecies that Mihailo just mentioned there. Well, uh, well, thanks very much for that, Mihailo. And for our final story of the show today, we'll look at a high-profile lawyer who worked with the Clinton campaign being acquitted. For this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, if you want more evidence that America's court system has become corrupt, Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman was acquitted of lying to the FBI during his Durham investigation court trial this week. And for those who haven't been following that story closely, basically in a nutshell, uh, what happened is the Clinton campaign uh, hired an Internet research firm to basically spy on Trump Tower and even spy on the White House after Trump was elected a president. Uh, Sussman was working with this firm while they were doing all that. Uh, and then he he went to the FBI, told the FBI about that. Uh, the FBI asked him, if he, are you just a concerned citizen who found out about this on accident or are you working for somebody? And he, he told them he was just a concerned citizen. He wasn't working for anyone. Uh, meanwhile, Clinton had instructed some of her other staffers, uh, Jake Sullivan primarily, to leak the story to the media. And then by leaking it to the media and the FBI roughly about the same time, uh, they made it look like there was some sort of huge scandal uh, involving Donald Trump and a bank account he had uh, at Alpha Bank in Russia. Now, John Durham accused Sussman of lying to the FBI and uh, actually the uh, the Clinton campaign manager in the trial told the jury that uh, basically that Sussman had lied to the FBI, that Clinton instructed him and approved the plan to talk to the FBI before he even talked about it. And so all the testimony shows that he, he did tell the FBI he wasn't working for Clinton when all the people in the Clinton campaign are testifying that he was. Now, the jury had uh, three Clinton donors, an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez donor, uh, and one other liberal who personally knew Sussman. So it was a pretty rigged jury uh, that said there wasn't enough evidence to say he left the FBI, and he uh, they let him off the hook. And so uh, quite a few people, including Donald Trump, are, are pretty upset about that but as we're we're winding down on time here we'll just put an article uh, in the show notes entitled america's broken judgment by our editor-in-chief this uh goes back to some other court cases uh that were were big in the news a year ago uh about just how corrupt the court system is uh and then goes through many prophecies primarily in the book of micah uh, about um what God has to say about corrupt judgment in Israel in the end time. Yes, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has been, you know, closely following John Durham's investigation and everything that's behind the scenes with that. He uh, he wrote that that cover story, I believe it was, uh, back in February called What Else Will John Durham Uncover? And then he also wrote a feature article in our March 2021 issue, really exposing the corruption of America's courts, just as as Andrew was just talking about there. It's called America's Broken Judgment. So you can find links to both of those in our show notes for today's program. And you can find links there to all of the articles and other pieces of literature that we've discussed today. That's on thetrumpet.com. 
Well, we are coming now to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel today, Andrew Miller, Mr. Richard Palmer, Mihailo Zekic, and Brent Noctegal. And we'll leave you today with these words from Joseph Addison. What sculpture is to a block of marble, education is to a human soul. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.